Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are continuing our study in 1 Peter. Uh, last week we looked at a fairly enigmatic and challenging text in, in some ways. Uh, this, this week's text is a little more straightforward. Uh, as I've stated before with regard to Peter, he kind of oscillates back and forth between the indicative and the imperative. That is, the things that point us to Christ, the gospel proclamations, and then the call to walk in faithfulness. And this falls into that latter category, if you will, the, the sort of imperative, uh, that theme of walking uh, faithfully in a world that is opposed to the gospel. And so that's where we're, we are in chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 11. And he's going to be talking particularly, again, about suffering. Uh, it's major theme of this book of what it means to suffer for righteousness sake and he comes back to that theme and what it looks like uh, to walk uh, faithfully in the light of suffering for Christ. So with that let's turn to the text. First Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. It's found for you uh, in your Bibles. I mean in your bulletins and in your Bibles. So if you would like to turn there with me. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this... They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as as good stewards of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this call to live godly lives. And Lord, we need your help to understand it and to by your spirit, apply it in a way that we can walk faithfully, even in the face of uh, whatever suffering for righteousness we may face. We need your help. So help us uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Peter comes back over and over again, it seems, in his letter, to the trials and suffering that believers face on account of their faith. He began with it in chapter 1. You may face various trials, uh, and that, so that the suffer, your faith might be shown to be more precious. And again in chapter 2, and then we saw it again in chapter 3, and here again in chapter 4. 
Now, our text isn't really any different in some respects. Um, he's picking up where he left off. Remember, we sort of dove into this deep, mysterious picture of Christ. Remember, proclaiming to the spirits uh, imprisoned. But that was almost like a parenthetical statement. That was like, let's look at Jesus. We sort of pulled back the curtain and looked at Jesus. But now he's coming back almost to where we left off uh, in verse uh, 18 of chapter 3. So let's talk about suffering for righteousness sake once again. And And I would say we might be tempted at this point to think that Peter has said everything there is to say on the topic. And we might be tempted to go and skip over this stuff or to tune it out. And I think that we are tempted to skip over this topic uh, for two reasons. There's probably more, but these are the two that I came up with. The first reason, I think it's easy for us to say, well, we don't really face persecution like the world faces persecution, Christians in the world. We don't face the trials of faith that brothers and sisters around the world face when they're in prison, say, for the sake of the gospel. So this topic is kind of theoretical. We don't really face persecution and suffering in any real sense. Now, there's some truth to this, right? We don't suffer as much as those in oppressive countries who imprison people for following Jesus. We just don't. And we can... Pray for those who are in those places and rejoice in their faith that is tested and tried and come to be uh, glorious. Um, But Peter's not writing, actually, to a people who are facing a government-sanctioned persecution. They will, eventually, under various uh, emperors, they will face persecution. But at this stage, when Peter's writing to this small group of Christians in the far reaches of the Roman Empire and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's not writing to people who are under any formal persecution. They're actually facing something much more common and mundane, and I want to come back to that in just a little bit. These converts in Asia Minor have abandoned the common practices of the Greco-Roman world around them. What our text described in very uh, colorful words, as living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And so by abandoning these lifestyles, the Christians in Asia Minor, these Christians were implicitly judging their friends. Have you ever been there? You say, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. Your friends say, who are you to judge what we do? You've made a decision to, to follow Christ and to live a certain lifestyle. And yet the world looks on you and says, you're judging me. That's kind of what's going on. We're, we're going to unpack this a little bit. So Peter's not writing to people who are being, by the sake, by the force of government, imprisoned. They're facing their friends and the and the lifestyle that they've rejected has become the issue. And you know, this is what people do when they feel judged. They say, well if you're not with us, you are against us. Right? That's that's kind of how it works. 
And this brings me to my second reason why we really want to tune out the topic of suffering for righteousness' sake. And this one it maybe, maybe cuts up a little deeper to the heart, I think, maybe. We simply don't suffer for righteousness' sake. We don't live lives that are really all that different from the world around us. Now, I say that very sort of forcefully. What I mean is we don't always, right? We often find ourselves capitulating to the culture, blending in, being well-received and well-liked. And so when we hear this stuff about suffering for righteousness' sake, the truth is we don't want to hear it. We don't want to suffer for righteousness' sake. I don't want to suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, that's why I think Peter keeps coming back to the theme, because this stuff is hard. It's hard. And he comes back over and over again because he understands that what he is calling these believers to, what Christ is calling his followers to, is difficult, downright impossible, apart from the grace of God. Friends, I don't like to suffer ridicule. I don't like being seen as weird, as out of step with the culture. No one does. So what is Christ calling us to? What kind of life? What does it look like to follow Jesus in our contemporary world? And how do we endure being sidelined, ostracized, maligned, just being called weird? Well, let's look at the text. And the text calls us to bring glory to God in our lives through the power of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, we very well may face suffering for righteousness' sake. So let's look at this call to glorify God through Christ in two parts. First, live to the glory of God because it's a matter of life and death. Secondly, live to the glory of God because... And maybe I shouldn't say because, that's not right. Live to the glory of God by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So first, live to the glory of God. It's a matter of life and death. And secondly, live to the glory of God by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So first, it's a matter of life and death to live to the glory of God. Our text flows out of that glorious, mysterious picture of Christ that was painted by Peter at the end of chapter 3, which began in verse 18 this way. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Keeping in mind those thoughts, Christ was, who suffered was put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the Spirit. And I would say the emphasis here in chapter 4 isn't so much on Christ's work, but it's in the background, you need to keep it there, but it's on our imitation, if you will, our expression of the same pattern that Christ himself set, that we would indeed face suffering, and that even as we put to death the flesh, we are made alive in Christ. So that's kind of the pattern that's going on here. Peter now picks up this thread of suffering and says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you also can expect to suffer in the flesh. 
It's the imperative. You know what it is? It says, arm yourselves with this mindset. He's taking up on this military language. Arm yourselves with this mindset. Why? Why does Peter pick up this military language? Paul does this a lot, right? Put on the full armor of God, all that language. Peter's doing something similar here. He's saying, arm yourselves with the mindset of Christ. That is, suffering as Christ suffered in a righteous way. And the reason he's saying arm yourselves is because you will face battle. Internal battle, external battle. You are going into battle. And without the mindset of Christ, you cannot withstand the cultural battles that you will face. It's not a coincidence that Peter uses this military language. Peter himself knows these kind of battles. Do you remember he, as he was faced with the culture? When Jesus was in being questioned by the authorities and it was the night of his death and he and G, and Peter's there by the fire and people say hey hey I know you you're one of those followers of Jesus and what does he do in the face of the battle what does he do he shrinks back i'm just like you i'm a nobody don't pay any attention to me i don't know this Jesus peter knew the battle And then Peter goes on here in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. He says something that at first blush seems a little confusing. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that sounds exciting. If I just suffer enough for righteousness, I'll, I'll never sin anymore. Well, that's obviously not the case, right? That flies in the face of everything else in Scripture, never mind the fact that experientially it doesn't make any sense, right? So what, is, what does he mean here? What is meant by this little statement that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? It means that when we suffer for righteousness, righteousness sake, it is proof that sin no longer rules over our life. When you willingly say, you know what, in the face of the battle for battle and in the the, the real desire I have to capitulate to my friends and the culture around me, I don't. And I take on whatever comes my way because of that. It is sort of proof in the pudding of the power of God. God has broken sin. You can walk in righteousness. Peter later on in, in Second Peter would say, you've been given the dunamis, the dynamite of God for Holiness, you can walk in newness of life because you've been given the power of God. Sin no longer reigns. But what does it look like? What does it mean for us to suffer for righteousness' sake? What does it what does it look like? Now before I say that, um, I want to highlight something that maybe it seems obvious. It seems obvious to me. But suffering for righteousness or suffering in general is part of the Christian life. That seems obvious to me. As somebody who regularly has people come to them and share all the pain and sorrow, when I 
witness people lay down their life for others, when I see people pick up their cross and follow Jesus, it just seems to make sense. The way of glory is the way of the cross. But I just want to highlight this one little thing here about suffering. Nobody wants to suffer, right? And a lot of times people, when they come to the gospel, they come to to sort of Christianity, what they want is for the preacher or whoever to say, if you just trust in Jesus enough, you will be blessed. You will never suffer pain. You will have all the glories of this world, right? There are stadiums full of people coming to listen to a message like that, right? But here, Peter is saying, suffering for righteousness' sake is part and parcel to the Christian life. It is a sign that you are, in fact, dead to sin and alive in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 6. Suffering, therefore, is a badge, if you will, of the gospel power in your life. That's a, that's a pretty significant thing. Peter goes on in verse 2 to say, So, as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You are dead to sin so that you can go now and live for the will of God. In other words, when we suffer for righteousness, it means that the passions of the flesh no longer rule over us. Rather, who rules over us? Who reigns in our hearts and in our lives? Christ himself. We are compelled by the will of God. So what does it mean? Coming back to what does it mean to suffer for righteousness sake? I think it's helpful to articulate what I don't think it means first. Uh, We are never called to abandon the world. Right? And I've said this before, we are called to live as pilgrims and sojourners in the world. And this means we ought to engage the culture being in it without being of it. You've heard those words before, I'm sure. You know, you can go places in our country and see enclaves. And there's different types, but I lived in western Pennsylvania and I could drive north on, on, uh, oh, I can't even remember what the route was, 79, I guess, and come up. Uh, to my, my sister-in-law's hometown and see buggies, you know. If you go to Lancaster County, you know what I'm talking about in Pennsylvania. You see buggies driving down the road. And you realize that there is this entire world of people that are living in an enclave that is completely walled off from the rest of society. Very little interaction. Recently, in response to the lamentable state of our culture here in Western America, some Christians are calling for what they call the Benedict Option. Now, maybe you're aware of this, um, but essentially it is a modified form of a monastic community, like that you're called to live uh, in a place where you surround yourselves by your Christian uh, church family and you start to build culture all over again. You start to create this community, not unlike the Amish, but without some of the trappings, right? Where you start to just create a new community, separate, walled off from the rest of the world. There's an appeal to these things, isn't there? There's something in me that's like, wouldn't that be awesome? 
I get to spend my days with y'all and we get to hang out together and build culture together and have jobs and do things and we could, you know, woodwork. I don't know. Sorry. Circle the wagons. And I can't help but think that part of the appeal is that we don't want to suffer. Right? Peter doesn't tell these people to abandon the world. He tells them to abandon the practices of the world. And this is a much harder and more demanding call because it means that we will be and must be in the mix, so to speak, right? Our lives are to stand out as different, not from a distance, not in some far removed little enclave like some city on a hill. But he says, you need to be up close and personal. Because that's where suffering for righteousness sake happens. And why is suffering so certain? Well, when we abandon the practices of the world, we show forth God's condemnation of those practices. In other words, we, by implication of our actions, that is, not doing the things that the world does, we judge the world. For some of you, right there, that's, that's, that's an uncomfortable place to be. We don't want to be like those judgmental Christians out there. Right? We don't want to look down on people. And I think that there's something good in that, right? Like, we want to offer love and, and grace and mercy. We want to be a winsome place where we draw in the unbelievers But the reality is when we live in a certain way, by our actions, people feel judged. Look at verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, etc. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, the particulars for their culture might be quite shocking. But are they? Are they really all that shocking? The things they describe are things that we can go and turn on the TV and see pretty much on any channel, right? Any YouTube video. It's not that shocking, but I think there's things about our culture that aren't on this list that we might add. That the culture parades about that are things that are opposed to Scripture. What happens when we don't affirm the gender and sexuality ethics of today, but hold to a biblical gender and sexual ethic that states, God made man, male and female, after his own image, and that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that sex and intimacy belong within the confines of such marriage. What happens to you when you state those things, or you live life as if those things are true? Does the culture say, well, welcome into the... You can be part of the conversation. We love you. Or how about when we don't idolize money and power and position and education and our sort of idolization of body and image and all of that. Like, what happens when we say those things are not ultimate? They're secondary. We say that to the culture. 
When we don't say that there are many paths to God and that Christ is the only way. If you, you say, you know, the very religious world we live in, and if you go in and say, you know, I'm part of this religious world. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Is everybody like, oh, yeah, that, I'll be tolerant of that belief? Oh, that's great. No, of course not. When we don't affirm the culture and its sinful practices and join in with them, what happens when your friends say, come on, let's go do X. It'd be a lot of fun. We could just go hang out at doing, you know, whatever. And you say, you know, I, I don't do that anymore. Your friends are like, oh, that's great. You're so cool. I want to be like you. No, it doesn't, doesn't work like that, does it? The text says, first, that they're surprised, Right? And, and I think probably if you had been involved in those things in the past and these were your friends and all of a sudden you had the gospel transform your life and you say, no, I can't no longer do X and I hold to this value Y, they're at first shocked and surprised. It's in contrast to who you once were. Maybe you yourself used to agree and engage in the debauchery, so to speak, and they're shocked at the change. But you know what? Shock and surprise doesn't last very long. First, they begin by trying to convince you to join them. Then they try to remind you of the fun you used to have together. Then they try and show you how radical your ideas are and how out of step with the world you are. Then they'll start to warn you that you're on the wrong side of history. That's one of my favorites. Then they'll teach you that you, and tell you that you're actually a bigot and full of hate. And you're just one of those typical judgmental Christians. And likely, they'll stop talking to you at this point, and they'll talk to others about you, right? That's the next thing. They'll malign you. They'll say, uh, maybe it'll even be feigned sympathy. Oh, did you hear what happened to Rob? He's been sucked into a cult. They've brainwashed him. He can't think for himself anymore. He's left his brain at the door. Then if you persist in being in their life and in their world, because that's what we're called to as Christians, right? Engage with the world around us. Then they'll simply be frustrated by the judgment your life brings on them. They will hurl insults your way, especially through social media. They'll tell you you're judgmental or tell others that you're judgmental and a hypocrite that you're bigoted, that you're racist, that you're xenophobe, that all sorts of things. They'll try to tag these things on you, even if these don't apply to you. And they'll start lumping you in with the worst of people. Maybe you think I'm being extreme, all right? Maybe, maybe you think I'm being extreme. It doesn't always turn out so bad, right? More often than not, you simply get unfriended. Persona non grata. Sure, it's not being sent to the gulag, right? It's suffering nonetheless. It's painful nonetheless. And it can cause us to wonder, maybe I am the crazy one. Have you felt that way? I feel that way all the time. And it's at this point that I need to come back to my main point. Live to the glory of God. It is a matter of life 
and death. Notice what Peter says in response in verse 5. He says this to give you comfort in your suffering. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now this word of encouragement is not there in order that you might return evil for evil and reviling for reviling. You ought not respond to haters with hate. Remember, your life bears witness to the truth that God is judge of heaven and earth. That's why people malign Christians. At the root of why people malign Christians is because they have a sense that what they're doing is wrong when they see you walk in a way that is absolutely different and they they start to question, and what an awesome thing, what an opportunity. Because some of those people in their guilt will say something to this effect. How do you have such hope and confidence? How are you able to endure this kind of suffering? And you can say, it's not me. It's the power of Jesus. And you can share with them the gospel. Always being ready to give a reason for the hope. Nevertheless, Peter reminds his readers that judgment is sure and that you can take comfort in your faithful endurance. Even though you feel as though you are bearing judgment, the real judgment is yet to come. And as you walk in faithfulness, humbly before your God, suffering for righteousness' sake, you can be reminded that God's power is at work in you, preserving you. Peter is saying that though you were judged in the flesh, that is, they died in the flesh. Did you notice that? That little weird statement? He's saying, though they were judged in the flesh, they died in the flesh. The believer is nevertheless alive in the spirit, just as God himself is. You have confidence. You see, it is easy to lose heart in the face of the world who tries its hardest to make our faith seem evil. And out of step. But the reality is very different. Our only hope, our only hope in the face of the judgment of God is our union with Christ, who himself suffered for us, that he might hide us in himself, as we read earlier, and bear us home to glory. Our badge of enduring hostility and suffering on account of righteousness is a sign that our life is hid in Christ. That when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, we shall live. That's our hope. It's our strength and our encouragement. So press on, living to God's glory and the power of Christ, the one who judges. I'm going to conclude by looking at the second half of this section. Um, I'll try to run through it as fast as I can, but uh, I want to look at the second half of this. Press on living to God's glory, seeing that it is all by God's grace. I've been talking about how we ought not to live in accordance with the world. It's a whole other thing to say how we should live. Peter paints, paints a picture of the life of the one who has the mindset of our suffering Savior. And the first thing that we note is what we just said. The end of all things is at hand. We don't feel that, do we? That God is is the one who's coming to judge the living and the dead. And it's at hand. It's near. It's, it's, It's close to us. 
It's not far off. Friends, we live as those who are close to glory. Do we live like that? As if glory is just a, is this one step away. And what does it look like to live as if we're close to glory? The first thing he says is that we ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's in direct opposition to the debauchery of described earlier in the text of the surrounding culture. It is living life eyes wide open to the realities present to you and the supernatural realities below and beneath the things that we see. Being self-controlled and sober-minded, you see, is in opposition to the hedonist, right? The hedonist is a materialist. He or she is someone who sees none of the greater implications, but is caught up in the moment of pleasure. Pays no attention to the greater things. The one who sees clearly. The one who sees rightly is the one who is able to be self-controlled and sober-minded, who understands the implications of the things they do. But this self-control and sober-mindedness is with the aim of prayerfulness. Did you notice that in the text? When we begin to see light in light of eternity, what happens? And we start to have that sober-minded reality that this world belongs to the King of heaven and earth, that he rules and reigns over it, and he's called us to walk this path. What is, how does that change our perspective? We stop being the center of the world. The hedonist is the center of the world, right? There's my pleasure. And we start to see our need of the one who is himself the king of kings, the one who is our heavenly father, the one who cares for us shepherds us and guides us. So what do we do? When we're sober-minded and and self-controlled, what do we do? We get down on our knees because we know in our own strength we have no power, but we have a king who is able. One who loves us. Who shed his blood for us. The second way he calls us to live to God's glory is by our love for one another. We've talked about this over the course of weeks, but it's that deep love that is full of the mercy of God that overlooks, forgives, and covers sin. He says this is a more important thing than anything else. Above all, he's just following the Lord Jesus and the other apostolic words that talk about the primacy of love. See, we not only love through our forgiveness and our covering of sin, but it says here that we ought to show hospitality. We show love in the way that we welcome people into our homes and into our lives. And we do it without quid pro quo. We do it without grumbling. We, we offer our lives to one another and share with one another, not with the idea of, well, I'll do this for you. What are you going to do for me? And when you don't get that thing, oh, I've got to help people again. I've got to be nice. Without that grumbling spirit. Love doesn't do that. Finally, he urges us to use our God-given gifts. And our gifts are different and varied. The varied graces of God. We ought not to envy and covet one another's gifts. But rather, we ought to use our gifts to the service 
of one another. Whether they're gifts of word or gifts of deed. So this is the picture that he's painting. What does it look like to live a life of righteousness in this world, even in the face of suffering? Here's a, here's a picture. It isn't comprehensive, but it's a picture. And when I read a list like this, it can feel like pie in the sky. It can feel like I'm never going to measure up to this list. And this, of course, is true unless we see that this new life we lead, a life that is markedly different from the world and one that reflects our Savior, that this life comes from God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this last verse. It's it's amazing. It's it's, It's like Peter comes to the end of this section and he just he can't help he's reflected on the mystery of jesus and he's called christians to this impossible task of living righteous lives and enduring suffering and loving one another and showing hospitality he's he's done all this and he says you know what none of this is possible if it weren't for our god and savior jesus christ and he ends with this verse and he says Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of God that God supplies. It's like he stops there and he says, of course, it's all from God. And what does he do next? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is the power. This is the way. Well, you want to know what is, is the Christian life and the, 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 this ability to endure suffering, even in the face of, of all sorts of maligning, as the scripture says here? You want to know the secret to loving one another well and to serving one another well and to being hospitable? You want to know the secret to a life of self-control and sober-mindedness? The power of Jesus Christ through the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's why I think when he says be self-controlled for prayer, he's saying because that's the source. You keep going back to the source that is God himself. We have this beautiful doxology. Peter glorying in the power of God that is able to transform a bunch of pagan hedonists into those who reflect Jesus Christ and are willing to suffer for his sake. Our putting to death our former passions of the flesh and our aiming ourselves with the mindset of our suffering Savior and our living out that mindset through self-control, love, and service is all through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that where he ends... Solo, sola Deo, Gloria. That in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be long glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.